Well, like Joe, I've got to say I was so overwhelmed with joy last Sunday on Resurrection Sunday to be able to worship with all of you and witness Luke's baptism and and just celebrate what God's doing uh, in his church. And um, it was just a great, great joy. So we're excited. We really feel like we're moving into a new season now with community groups being able to come back and children's ministry launching in about a month. And so, um, yeah, it's just an exciting time in the church right now and an exciting time overall, I feel like, as a state and as a nation, as we're kind of seeing, um, hopefully, this pandemic winding down and people being able to regather more safely. Well, Psalm 15, let's, let's turn our attention here. Now, this psalm addresses one of the most important questions that we can ask. Who may dwell in God's presence? The reason why this is so incredibly important is because what's at stake here is our eternal joy. What do I mean by that? Well, next week when we get to Psalm 16, we're going to come across a very, very famous and important verse. It's Psalm 1611, and David writes there these words. He says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So what's at stake when we're talking about being able to be in God's presence is nothing less than our eternal joy. David is saying in Psalm 1611 that it is actually in the presence of God that we as his creatures and his image bearers actually reach the climax of our joy. It's in God's presence. That's where our joy is ultimately found. And so the way that We answer this question, who can enter into God's presence, who's allowed to dwell in God's presence, has implications for our joy now and for our joy through all of eternity. So this is a deeply important question for us to address and a deeply important question for us to get right. There's a lot at stake here. The structure of this psalm is very straightforward. It's really simple. Uh, We could break it into three parts. Verse 1 is the question that's asked here. So he asks a question to kick off the psalm. And then in verses 2 through 5b, if you want to break verse 5 into three parts, uh, verse 2 through 5b is the response or the answer to the question. And then finally in 5c, the very last little line here, David ends this psalm with a promise. A promise for those who respond appropriately to the question. So we're going to take these in turn. Verse 1 again is the question of Psalm 15, and he's asking essentially, who shall dwell in your presence? Where am I getting that? Well, here's what he writes. He says, "O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Now that word tent there is a reference to the tabernacle in the days before the temple was built there in the city of Jerusalem. And the tabernacle was, in fact, a tent. It was a temporary sort of mobile worship station for God's people when they were on the move. Before God's people were settled in the promised land, they were able to erect this tent where the Ark of the Covenant, which is where heaven met earth, the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was symbolized, where God's rule and reign was symbolized, that was in the tent. It was in the tabernacle. And so every time God's people moved, They would stop and they would reset up this tent. And in its 
Inside of it, they would have all of the holy items and they would have the Ark of the Covenant. And so the tent or the tabernacle was where God's presence dwelt. He goes on though in this verse and he says, after talking about the tent, he says, who shall dwell on your holy hill? Now this is a reference to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is there in Jerusalem. It is the holy hill. And Mount Zion is where David actually transported the Ark of the Covenant to. And Mount Zion is where ultimately David's son Solomon would erect a permanent temple in its place. And so David here is essentially saying, who is allowed to be in your presence, God? Who can dwell in your presence? Who can live before the presence of the Lord? Now, interestingly, when David moved the ark to Mount Zion during his reign, David learned firsthand that not just anybody has access to God's presence in any way that they would like to. There's a very famous and quite terrifying story in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where a man named Uzzah was helping to transport the ark to Jerusalem. And God's people were celebrating, they were rejoicing because God's presence was coming into the capital city. And they had the Ark of the Covenant on a wagon with oxen pulling it. And there were people all around it and they were singing songs and they were celebrating. And a man named Uzzah was walking next to the cart and suddenly one of the oxen stumbled. And when it did, Uzzah was worried that the Ark of the Covenant would slide off of this cart and fall onto the ground. And so Uzzah reached out his hand and he touched the Ark of the Covenant to stabilize it and the Lord struck him dead. David was distraught over this. In fact, the text says David was angry with the Lord because this happened. David was so confused. Why? Just like we're probably confused. Why would God strike this man dead? He was, it seems, doing something really good. He was trying to stabilize the Ark so that it didn't fall onto the ground. R.C. Sproul, in one of his seminal works, The Holiness of God, made a statement I'll never forget. He said, Uzzah made the mistake of believing that the ground was filthier than his hand. In other words, what God was communicating in that moment is that he is holy and we are not. And so those who have access to God's presence don't just come any way they want. They come the way that God has prescribed. And Uzzah was not doing that in 2 Samuel 6. So as David here in Psalm 15 is asking this question, who can dwell in God's presence? David's not just thinking anybody. David knows that there is a particular type of person who has access to the living God, this holy, majestic God. So this is his question. Let's move now into the answer, starting in verse 2. David writes, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. So the answer to the question, 
who may dwell in the presence of the Lord, is essentially this, the righteous person. The righteous person. Essentially what David gives us in these verses is a portrait of the righteous person. Now, according to Hebrew wisdom literature, all people can basically be broken up into two groups. The righteous and the wicked. The godly and the ungodly. We see this, uh, this division in Psalm chapter 1, which is the gateway psalm that helps us to understand this wisdom book. Here's Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6. Listen to the contrast. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so David here is giving us a portrait of the righteous person. This is the person who is known by the Lord. This is the person who can dwell in God's presence. The righteous are those whose faith and trust is in the Lord, which is shown through their faithfulness to the covenant that God made with Israel. To say that differently, the righteous person is the person who lives the way that God has called them to live. And so this portrait of the righteous helps us to understand what the righteous person looks like. It's not exhaustive. In fact, if you turn to Psalm 24, it's a very similar psalm to Psalm 15. David asks a similar question. He says this in verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? Translation, who can dwell in God's presence? And here in Psalm 24, he says this, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So notice that David offers a similar answer there, but there are some differences. So let's look together at this portrait of the righteous person. The first thing that he says or that he points out is that the righteous person the person who has access to God is the person who walks blamelessly. The person who walks blamelessly. This is the person of integrity. This is the person who has inner wholeness or consistency of character. This is the person who lives a life that is above reproach. So that as other people look at this person's life, there's nothing that they can say, oh my gosh, here's wickedness in their life, or these are things that we can accuse them of. You look at their life and you go, you, you know what? Of course they're not perfect, but they have integrity. They're consistent in their character. They're above reproach. Again, there's inner wholeness and consistency in the righteous person. And because of that, the righteous person does what is right. This is the second thing that we see. In other words, this inner wholeness that the righteous person possesses comes out through their actions. They end up doing what is right. So when decisions are presenting themselves, and on one hand they could do the right thing, and on the other hand they could do the wrong thing, the righteous person is the one who does the right thing. They live consistently with God's will and with God's law. So again, this inner wholeness comes out through their actions, they do what is right. 
Notice third here that this inner wholeness, this internal integrity, also comes out through their speech or through their words. David points out that this person speaks truth. Speaks truth. Now it's interesting because it says there in the text that this person speaks truth in his heart. Speaks truth in his heart. The idea here is that the righteous person is the person who has internalized the truth. That the conversation that is going on in their heart is a conversation that is guided by the truth. Let me say this differently. The righteous person is the one whose internal life, their thought life and their heart is being formed and is being shaped by the word of truth, God's word itself. That is what is forming their ideas. That is what is shaping their beliefs. That is what is guiding their thought life. They speak truth in their heart. Now, this can also be translated, as the New International Version does, that they speak truth from their heart. Speak truth from their heart. In other words, they share the truth with others from their heart. Right? They've internalized the truth like I was just talking about, and then that's the truth that comes out of them, and they share with other people. They don't believe one thing inside and yet speak in another way or share something else with others. No, instead, they have deep convictions that are based on God's word, and those deep convictions lead to courageous speech. They speak the truth from their hearts. Now, family, this is a very, very important point for us. You and I live, of course, in a postmodern cultural context. What that means is that sort of at the popular level, there is a denial of objective truth. There is a denial that people can know anything objectively or that any truth can be absolute, right? All truth is relative. So, it's okay to say that this is my truth or this is what I believe because truth, according to postmodernism, is arrived at through my own uh, culture. It's through my own experiences and it's the way that I internalize and then process the world. So I can say this is true for me. But one of the great sins of our time is to claim that you know something to be objectively true and therefore binding on another person. And yet, family, as Christians, we do know something. As Christians, we know God. And God speaks truth. Isaiah 45, 19. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. We know God and God speaks truth. Furthermore, Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. What's more, the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Finally, the Bible itself is the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, 
rightly handling the word of truth. So family, we do know something. We know God and God possesses the truth. And so against the assault of postmodernism on truth, the righteous person stands up like a voice crying out in the wilderness and says, there is objective truth and we have a way of understanding it. But it's not just the truth in general that our culture wants us to to deny. Our culture is pressuring us who are Christians to deny many specific truths too. Culture, of course, wants us to deny that Jesus is the only way to God. And yet, as I pointed out a moment ago, Jesus is the one who said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Culture wants us to deny that the baby in the womb is in fact a person whose own life is sacred and worthy of being protected regardless of whether he or she is wanted in this world. Culture wants us to deny that sex has a deeper meaning than physical pleasure and thus accept that any kind of sex is moral and beautiful as long as no one is getting hurt. Culture wants us to deny that in the beginning God made them male and female And that humans are embodied persons so that our bodies do tell us important things about our identity and how we might honor and glorify the Lord. Family, culture wants us to deny these things and a thousand other truths that are out of step with the cultural zeitgeist. And so against this tidal wave of cultural pressure, yes, the righteous person should be tactful, and gracious, empathetic and understanding, gentle and lowly. But the one thing they cannot do is lie. The righteous person is committed to the truth. Charles Spurgeon, that famous Baptist preacher from a century and a half ago, said it so well. He said, our heart must be the sanctuary and refuge of truth. Should it be banished from all the world beside and hunted from among men, at all risk we must entertain the angel of truth, for truth is God's daughter. What fitting words. He says, though truth be banished from all the world besides in the hearts of those who name the name of Christ, though truth be hunted and pursued by everyone in the world, He says, we must be a a person, we must be people who are a sanctuary and a refuge for the truth. So this person who dwells in God's presence is a person who speaks the truth. Added to this total commitment to the truth, the righteous person does not slander and does not bring destruction to their neighbor. So this is the fourth thing, does not slander. Now, it is true that we can bring destruction to our neighbors through lying to them. But it is also true that we bring destruction to our neighbors by lying about them. And that's exactly what slander is. Slander is when you knowingly lie about another person. You're slandering that person. And this is a massive sin. The scriptures all over the place condemn the practice of slander. 
The problem with slander is that slander actually can, can destroy a person's reputation. It damages their reputation. When you slander somebody, even if that person ultimately is vindicated and the truth comes out, it's caused people to think bad thoughts about that person. It's caused people to ask questions and to wonder, wow, is she really like that? Or did he really go and do that? And he, again, even if you're vindicated, some people's minds are still going to say, well, maybe, there's, maybe it wasn't that bad, but maybe there was something there. I'm sure people didn't just make that up out of thin air. Slander is a terrible, terrible sin. All of our speech as believers is aimed at building up other people. Our speech is aimed at edifying and encouraging other people and not tearing them down, right? Paul writes in Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Here's a great way to avoid slander. When talking about another person, if your sentence begins with, I heard, just stop. If you don't know, then don't talk about it. If your sentence begins with, I heard, you're running the risk of slander. Just stop. There's, no, there's, there's going to be probably nothing good that's going to come out of continuing that sentence. Now, the heart behind all of this is that the righteous person is not trying to do their neighbors wrong. The righteous person is not out to disrupt the lives of their neighbors, to bring destruction to the lives of their neighbors. No, the, the, the person of God is the person who wants to bless their neighbors. And so here we see the fifth thing, the righteous person does no harm. Family, as followers of Jesus... You and I are called to be agents of blessing and healing in a world of sin and destruction. And so the righteous person, their heart toward their neighbors is to do no harm to them. Instead, to be a blessing to them. The next thing in verse 4 is that the righteous person honors the godly. Look at verse 4. He writes, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. The righteous person is the person who honors the godly. This is such an interesting point in this passage because it's getting at who we esteem, who we look up to, who we honor, who we respect, who we celebrate. This is so important. Notice that the righteous person does not honor and esteem the vile person, the person that's given over to sinfulness and evil. Instead, they honor the godly. Those that you celebrate and that you set up as icons and heroes are those that you and your children are going to emulate. Those that we set up as our icons, our heroes, those that we are celebrating are those that we will begin to emulate and your children will do the same. And so the question for us is, who do you celebrate? Who do I celebrate? Who are the people that I look up to? Who are the people that I'm honoring? Is it ungodly celebrities? 
Are those the people that we're celebrating? Are those the people that we are constantly looking to and putting forward as role models or those that we would want to emulate? We want their fame and their wealth and their notoriety. Are these the people that are on our TV screens constantly and in our, in our conversations and all over our social media feeds? Is it ungodly celebrities, people that are living vile lives? Is it the wealthy who use their wealth in self-indulgent ways? Oh man, they have everything. Is that the topic of conversation around your dinner table? Man, we want, we want, to, we want to be like that. We want, we want money. We want to be able to just have everything that we want. Oh, look at them. They have all of these awesome things. They've got all the toys. They've got the biggest house. They've got the coolest cars. And is that, is that the thing that, if we're being honest, it seems like we're celebrating and that we're honoring and that we're looking up to is self-indulgence through wealth? Is it the powerful person in your company or in your industry, even if that person uses their power and influence to exploit other people? Does that not matter? Because, hey, they're the power players in my industry. I want to be like them. I'm following them. I want to emulate them. Or, family, do we celebrate the godly? Are those our heroes? Are those the ones that we're looking at and saying, man, that's the kind of life I want to live? Do we celebrate godly men and women in our own church family? Sure, maybe they don't have uh, all of the things that this world values, but are they godly? Are they living righteous lives? Do they invest themselves in kingdom work? Do they have a long, consistent testimony of faithfulness? Oh, church, we should honor people like that. We should celebrate and praise people like that in our church. Do we honor and celebrate and look up to godly men and women in our community who have a long-standing reputation of faithfulness to the Lord and love for their fellow person? Do we celebrate godly men and women in church history? Are those the heroes that we are putting before our children? The men and women who have gone before us over the last 2,000 years and have laid down their lives for the kingdom of God and the glory of Christ. Are their names on our lips? Are their stories being celebrated among us, among the people of God? Do we tell stories of people like Jim and Elizabeth Elliot or Corey Tin Boom or Joni Erickson Tata or, or Adoniram Judson or John Wycliffe or John Newton or John Calvin or Athanasius or Basil or on and on we could go. Do we look to these people and tell their stories? Are they the ones that our hearts are saying, I want to live a life of faithfulness to Jesus like that? We honor those who fear the Lord. Now, quickly, this does not mean that we can only honor Christians. In the text, it talks about the vile person. That's important. Because of God's common grace, there are many non-Christians who still live honorable lives. And they choose to do what is right oftentimes, and we should celebrate, and we can honor that as well. But we should never be people who honor the vile person, who celebrate godlessness and wickedness in whatever forms it comes in. Moving on, notice that the righteous person is faithful to their commitments. This is the next thing, faithful. We see this because the righteous person keeps an oath even when it costs them. I'll say it differently, especially when it costs them. Right? It's easy to keep your word 
when it's going to work out well for you, when it's to your advantage. But what about when you make a commitment and then the circumstances change to where if you follow through on the commitment, it's no longer going to work out to your advantage. Then what do you do? This is where the rubber meets the road. Do we say, man, this is actually going to cost me now, but I told this person I would do it. I gave them my word. The righteous person is the one who still follows through and delivers on their word even when, especially when it costs them. That's the only way to be set apart from what the world does. They deliver on their word every single time when it's going to work out to their benefit. But the righteous do it no matter what. They're faithful to their word. Finally, we come to the way that the righteous person handles their money. And so the final thing here is that they are not a lover of money. Verse 5, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Now, this is not a blanket ban on earning interest or on loans. In the Old Testament, we even see there that the Jews did have a blanket ban against uh, drawing interest from other Jews. But we see in the Torah that they could draw interest on loans from non-Jews. Uh, non-Jewish merchants especially. The issue at stake in the Old Testament is exploitative lending. So practices of lending where you're exploiting another person, particularly another person who is in distress. See, the economy of the Old Testament was incredibly different than the modern economies that, that we live in. In the Old Testament, you had an agrarian society And you had essentially a very tiny wealthy class. And then you had a massive class that basically just lived off of their land. They just had enough to sustain themselves. One bad harvest, one famine, one drought. That was enough to completely undo a person and their family. And in those sorts of contexts, for somebody who had money and resources to say, man, this person needs something from me, okay, You can have a loan, I'll give to you, but then charge unbelievable interest was counterintuitive to the heart of God. This went against the heart of God. Wealthy Jews were not to exploit the suffering of poor Jews when they fell on hard times by charging them any interest. Here's Exodus 22, 25 through 27. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a moneylender to them. And you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So God's heart was for the vulnerable poor, and the wealthy were to help and assist their their brothers and their sisters in times of distress. So if a family friend or a member of the church was in need, and they were asking, can I borrow $10,000 to pay my bills for the next two months? The response should not be, sure, you can borrow $10,000 as long as when you get back on your feet, you give me $20,000 in return. That's not going to help them. That's going to perpetuate the distress that they are in. But all of this is quite different from a loan for a business venture or loans for cars or homes or higher education or earning interest 
off of your money when banks or others are borrowing your money to go make themselves greater profits. This is talking about exploitative lending, and the righteous person is not about that. Also, of course, he says he does not take a bribe against the innocent. I'll just say this. You and I are very fortunate to live in a society where this is almost completely a non-issue. You and I live in a time and in a place where our courts are, are, are such that judges are not being bribed against the innocent. But across the world and throughout history, that has not been the case very often. And therefore, we probably ought to be a lot more grateful about the court systems that we do have, although they are far from perfect. They're better than most in the United States of America. Here then is a portrait of the righteous person, a portrait of the person who may dwell in God's presence. And so finally, David ends with a promise. He says, he who does these things shall never be moved. The person who displays these characteristics, the person who lives in this sort of a way is the person whose feet are on a rock, whose life is established on a sure foundation. This is the person who will never be moved. Now, some of us might be saying, how perfectly do I have to live up according to these standards in order for the promises of verse 5 and verse 1 to apply to me? Like, how good? Because maybe you identify with a lot of this, but maybe the Holy Spirit's convicting you, and you're going, man, I'm kind of blowing it there. Yeah, I don't know, maybe a B minus on that one, C plus over here. And so maybe you're wondering, does God grade on the curve or something? Like, is God, if I'm better than most, can I get into God's presence, and is my life going to not be shaken? But if I'm worse than most, then I'm going to be in trouble? Well, family, that's not the way that this worked. And this is the most important thing that needs to be said in this entire sermon. This is not a checklist to enter God's presence. Somebody say amen. This is not a checklist to enter God's presence. As I've been saying this entire time, this is a portrait of the righteous person. Yes, it's true that only this type of person will be able to dwell in God's presence, but it does not follow that they earn their way into God's presence. There are two ways that this could work. There are two ways. On one hand, it could work like this. A person is granted access to God's presence because they are righteous. So the way this is working is the person cleans themselves up, they're righteous, and then God says, because you're righteous, you have access to my presence. That's one way this could work. Or... It could work this way. A person is righteous because they've been granted access to God's presence. So that God's presence is given to a person first, and that is what makes them righteous. And friends, according to the Bible, it's the latter. It's option two. And it's option two, not just in the New Testament. It's option two in both the Old and the New Testament. In both Testaments of the Bible, righteousness comes through faith. We don't earn it. We don't check the boxes. We don't try to live better than our neighbors so God will be happy with us and so that we can dwell in his presence. No, righteousness, right standing with God, comes through faith. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. 
Father Abraham, Genesis 15, 6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is the pattern. Faith in the Lord, trust in the Lord. Yes, it works itself out in a different style of living. Yes, it works itself out in faithfulness to the covenant. But it's faith that brings the righteousness. Faith in the Lord. Now let's jump to the New Testament. Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to, for salvation to everyone who works. Wait, I'm sorry. Everyone who believes. That's faith. Everyone who believes. He goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. How do we become righteous? Through faith. We trust the Lord. We look to the Lord. We follow the Lord. So it is faith in the Lord which makes us righteous before him and gives us access to his presence. In the Old Testament, Believers had faith that God would make them righteous by completely dealing with their sin. In the Old Testament, the sacrificial system where Jewish people would sacrifice animals at the temple, all of that was a temporary covering for their sin. But they had faith that because God said, this is what you need to do to deal with your sin, they had faith that that would somehow be enough for them. And it was. Because according to Romans chapter 3, in that time, God was passing over their sins. There was a temporary covering through the sacrifice of animals so that with the coming of Christ, God would deal with their sins once and for all and their sins would be permanently removed through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Lamb of God. Ultimately, God sent his own son who would be the truly righteous person of Psalm chapter 15. And who would lay down his life on the cross as the one and only sacrifice that could obliterate our sins for all of eternity. And by faith in him, we experience total forgiveness of our sins. And we share in his righteousness so that now when we stand before the, the Lord, we are righteous and we are accepted and we are blameless. And we have uninterrupted access. It is in Christ alone. Hebrews 10.4 reminds us it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But the scriptures teach us that through faith in Christ, we have access to God the Father. Ephesians 2.13 puts it this way. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And what's more, through faith in Christ... We are empowered to start living the way that God has called us to live. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so, family, it is by faith in Christ that we are both made righteous and being made righteous. It's all faith. The moment you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, God declares you righteous. He sees you covered in the blood of Jesus. He sees you clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He sees you as a person 
who has never sinned, even though you've sinned a million times, because he sees you through the righteousness of Christ and through your faith in Jesus and your union to him, we begin to embody the very life of Christ. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to start doing what is right, to start living the way that God is calling us to live. And so over time, even though none of us perfectly depict Psalm 15, over time this becomes a portrait of not just the righteous hypothetically out there, it actually becomes a portrait of your life and my life to the glory of God and the good of our neighbors. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I wonder if that describes you this morning. I sure hope so. Let's pray.